0: Hello and welcome to this week's Choosing Happy podcast. I had an amazing conversation this week with Bob Little, who is a writer, a blogger, a commentator, a speaker, and so much more. And we discussed so much more, everything from writing through to AI, through to religion, through to faith. All this and more in this week's Choosing Happy podcast. Hello and welcome to the Choosing Happy podcast. This week, I have the pleasure of talking with Bob Little. Now, Bob is a writer, a blogger, a commentator, a speaker, a publicist and so much more, including being a singer and a Baptist lay minister. Hello, Bob.
1: Hello. 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 Nice to uh, Nice to be with you.
0: It's lovely to have you here. And could you start by telling us a little more about where you started out?
1: Well, goodness, that that could take the whole uh, the whole interview, really, because um, I was born at a very early age, you know, and um, I I always really I think wanted to be two things. After my first ambition, of course, uh, because everybody has has a weird ambition when they're about two or three. My first ambition was to be a bus driver, and I have to say I've never ever driven a bus. I've driven lorries, I've driven eight VVs, <laughs> but I've never driven a bus. But after I got over that, I really wanted to be a writer and or a cricketer. And um, so much so that when I was about seven or eight, uh, I actually made uh, some, well, jokingly called newspapers, really. They were, they were just things that eight-year-olds write. And um, so I was really into it, but I had no idea that I was ever going to actually make a living out of writing. Uh, And how that came about was, uh, like many people's careers, really, it was a chapter of accident. I wanted to become an opera singer, and uh, I went and studied uh, briefly at the Welsh College of Music and Drama, as it was then. Now it's the Royal Welsh College, Uh, but that happened uh, happened after my time. That was in Cardiff, and as I was coming to the end of that, my singing teacher, who was a man called Gerald Davis, who had sung at Covent Garden, uh, I think just before the war. He was he was really an old sort of man by the time I got to him. Uh, Fred recommended that I came up to London and studied with uh, a man called Edgar Evans, who was teaching at the Royal College of Music, and he just retired after thirty years as principal tenor at the Royal Opera in Covent Garden. So I came up, and um, I managed to to get some lessons of Edgar. Uh, who was a great teacher and helped me enormously. And um, in order to do that, though, I had to finance my my time, and I got a job working uh, for uh, a road for the Road Transport Industry Training Board. Now that was industrial training board. Margaret Thatcher did not approve of them because they were they were quangos. And um, that aside, it was it was a great introduction. I, to, to working life because I, I joined as what was called a management trainer. And, uh, as people said to me, standing up in front of a, a group of people and delivering a training course is really all about show business. And to a certain extent, they were right. So I did that to fund my, my time, uh, learning to be a singer. I found that within the board, there were some, some opportunities to do some some writing, and, and that was great. And I, I got into writing learning materials. But then Margaret Thatcher really didn't like the training boards. And there was a big a big hiatus, and a lot of people left the board, uh, including the, the, the board used to produce a newspaper called Transport Training. And it went to all the companies in the road transport industry, and it was a tabloid newspaper. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, the editor, who was a man called Steve Ellis, who'd come from the Daily Mirror, he took his redundancy money and he went off, presumably, I think, back to the Daily Mirror. And, um, there was not an editor for that newspaper. So the board decided after about a year when it, it realized that Margaret Thatcher was, wasn't really going to kill it off, it just, just make it weaker. It decided mm-hmm. to restart the, the newspaper. It got me to, uh, be like a liaison with a, a, a semi-retired journalist who they got in. And we worked to get the newspaper together. Now the thing was that that newspaper was printed in Northampton and it was typeset in Northampton. And the, the printers and typesetters realized if they didn't teach me how to become a journalist and an editor and, and, uh, you know, everything else, uh, very quickly, they would lose contact. So I got this fantastic two- or three-week intensive uh, intensive course in how to become a journalist.
0: Wow.
1: And I suddenly found I was a journalist. And uh, not just a journalist, but an editor of my own newspaper. And the paper was printed in um, in Northampton on the Chronicle and Echo uh, presses. And it was slotted in between, they they printed, uh, I think it was The Guardian, uh, and they printed Sunday sports if anybody remembers Sunday Sport, which was a, a fairly um, low-grade newspaper. I learned a lot, incidentally, from the editor of Sunday Sport, who taught, taught me a lot about how to make stories up, but we won't go there. And, um, and, and I did that for a number of years. So I, I learned how to be uh, a journalist. I, I sold the adverts. I, I laid out copy. Oh, it was wonderful to learn how to, yeah. how to set out a page and design your page. And I took the photographs. I did everything. And then it was so obvious that time before the training board was uh, was finished, oh, I thought, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do now. Because, to be honest, I was being paid quite a high wage uh, for an in-house journalist. And I thought, nobody's going to take on an in-house journalist. So I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll tell people that I'm a PR consultant and wait to see if anybody believes me. Well, three companies believed me and took me on. Uh, and um, basically, don't tell them. But they paid me how to learn to be a public relations consultant, and that that started that side of life off. Uh, and so I I worked uh, as a as a public relations consultant, publicist, always in the sort of the training world, corporate training. Then I got into uh, online. Uh, learning technologies and, and that took me working around the world with various yeah. companies because there were so few people doing it. Mm. Uh, there, there, when you looked at it there were about no more than about four PR companies in the world looking at this area and I was amazed because I suddenly got calls from America and India and whatever and they said well will you come and come and work for work with us um, so it was terrific. So I got the, uh, a lot of places around the world, I got to write for a living, maybe not exactly what I would have wanted to write. Um, and that was, that was it. In the meantime, I, I was getting, uh, getting work as a, as a professional, semi-professional, uh, operatic tenor. But the problem was that you never made enough money at that. It, it was, it was a very, very lowly paid, uh, profession, even if you were quite good at it. So I, I moved into doing um, uh, semi-professional work. So that takes us up to almost where we are today, but, but uh, ask me another question probably.
0: <laughs> well, I'm just, just coming back to the writing a little bit. Yes, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, and the PR. Mm. I've had a few questions in when one of my writing uh, groups about freelance writing and whether yeah. it's advised to focus on the niche. Did you have a niche or were you oh, very I certainly broad?
1: Did. No, certainly did. Uh, I would always focus on a niche. Now the problem, you know, the problem with that is that if, if, um, if other people, uh, other organizations sort of come to you, then it's very difficult to, to, to relate what you do to what they want. But if you can find your niche, as I did with uh, online learning technologies, for example, Mm. then that is fantastic because within that need, it could take you all over the world. Uh, and um, as long as you've got access to, and, and it's easier these days being a publicist than it was in, in you know, 20 years ago, or mm. even 30 years ago, it's easier because people have social media. They have outlets through podcasts uh, and, um, you know, Facebook, X, LinkedIn. Uh, you can you can have your own blog. You can do all those sort of things rather than have to spend time convincing an editor of a of a trade magazine that what you what you want to to talk about is really worthwhile and everybody wants to read it. Um, so it is easier now. So yeah, go for it. Don't don't try and be uh, you know all things for all people. But that said, there are some very odd opportunities that will come to you. If you are focusing on that, on your niche, which you don't foresee. So, for example, I found myself at one point, um, what would it be? I suppose about 15 years or so ago, I suddenly found myself as the publicist for the British uh helicopter team, uh, which is uh, it, there's a, there's a sport. And I knew nothing about this. Uh, but I found myself being the PR for this. Uh, what it is that uh, there are some people who own helicopters. Obviously, that's your mm-hmm. your major um, major criteria, and they they do um, uh, a series of, of tests against the clock and, and what have you. And one of the things that they have to do is fly a figure of eight, and they suspend from the helicopter on a on a wire on a rope um, a coffee cup. Uh, full of coffee, and you're supposed to fly that ring re- re- ring of eight um sort of over a mile or so, whatever it is, and come back and you're not supposed to have built any of the coffee right uh, so that they, they do things weird things like that now the british uh, 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 helicopter team, i think always come we're about sixth or seventh in the world, but the Americans and the Russians nearly always win um these competitions. But I did that because there was a man uh, who owned a training company, who I knew, who was also captain and then manager of the British helicopter team. So he wanted somebody to do some publicity, and he did like just a few um, press releases and things. Will you do it? And suddenly, I found I was doing that. So you never know where it'll go, you know.
0: Yeah, yeah. And just looking back over what you've said so far, do you find that? Um. Well, it it feels like you've fallen into a lot of things. So is it is it that yeah. when the student's ready, the teacher appears type thing?
1: Something like that. Uh, you know, it's one of those things that the the harder you work, the luckier you become. You know, and the more opportunities yeah. that happen. And uh, you you do have to keep at it all the time. Um. There are some. Yeah. There 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 are plenty of things I could I could sort of tell you really about. Uh, about working all the hours that there were and never stopping and always trying to promote yourself uh, as well as your client uh, and there are there are tips and there are techniques for doing that. I don't know whether they work quite so well today in the post covid world um one of the things that I would always do if I was looking for work, you know um because I tell you what would happen what would happen, it was remarkable i I've worked as a as a uh, a PR, ran my own PR company for thirty years and you came across a pattern. So about this time of year, or usually Novembery time, um, you would suddenly find that a whole host of your clients would suddenly see that their budget for the rest of the year weren't looking really good and they weren't getting a lot of work and they would they would get rid of you. And you would, and I thought I took that terribly personally. First of all, I used think, oh, you know that that's terrible. I've I, I've um, upset them in some way, but it wasn't that. It was just that their their spreadsheet, their account didn't look good coming up to the end of the year, and they thought, well, the first thing that will go is, is the PR. And so, usually, come January, February was the time when you absolutely had to go out and find some new clients. And what I would do is I would just make sure that I was invited to um conferences and things like that. And you wouldn't go to the conference really for what was being talked about. You'd go there to network. And once you go to network, uh, there are there are some, some there is some some really interesting little sort of rules of networking that many people don't know. I was gonna say most people, but certainly many people don't know. Hmm. When you find yourself in a room and you're you're you know that you've got to find some client in that room All you have to do is you only ever have to relate to and find three people. That's all you have to do. Because many people will go into a room, they'll see 50 to 100 people, uh, all of whom are potential clients, and they go, well, that's far too many, I can't possibly do that. You don't. You don't do that. You only need to find three people. If you go to every event and find three people who will give you work, you only have to go to a few, a few, um, a few conferences and you've got plenty of clients, you know. So what you do then is, you know, the, the usual thing of people will talk about the, the, um, the elevator pitch. Well, elevator pitches sort of work, but they sort of don't work. It's much better to walk up to somebody and, and particularly if you, you look and you see if there's somebody who's on the edge of the, the group, you know, somebody by themselves, somebody who, who, Feels a bit shy, doesn't really fit in. And you go along and you just introduce yourself, say, you know, hi, I'm Bob, you know, who are you? You know, you, you, you know, and they, they should tell you who they are. And you go, well, so what brought you here? What, 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 what are you hoping to find out from today? And if you can get them to tell you about their business, that's the, that's the thing. You get the other person to tell you about what they're looking for and what their business is and what their problems are. And then you can decide whether, you can meet those needs. If you can't meet those needs, the thing to do is to say in your brain for yourself, well, who do I know? Who could help that person? And then you say, well, yeah, I mean, that's very interesting. Uh, you've got those, those issues. Have you thought of talking to so and so? I can give you their name. They're really good and they, they do this or they do that. And then suddenly they think you're quite a nice person. Yeah. Hopefully you are a nice person. And then you, you get. You get a, a good sort of rapport going. So even if you can't help them that time, the next time they need some PR, they'll come and talk to you. And you then yeah. you've done that. You move on to the next person, and you do that until you've got three people say to you, "Yeah, you know, let let meet up for a coffee and and talk about this a bit further." Uh, and then you know you you've done well. And that's how you build your business up if you're if you want to be a publicist.
0: Yeah, it's really. Interesting. I um I was on LinkedIn last week and this question about networking came up. And yeah. one similar to you one of the things that I always did was um talk to the people that that felt right to talk to at the time and it wasn't so yeah. much about just getting business although that obviously is is key. Hmm. It's also building those relationships because that 6 oh, yeah. degrees of separation you never know who can help you. So as you say, if you your offer answer. to help someone, they may know someone yes. who exactly needs your help as
1: well. So. Absolutely. You're, you're absolutely right. I mean, one other thing to, to think about when I was just about to start my PR business, I met a man who ran a uh, a, a high class motor dealership. So, you know, they don't in, in top of the range, um, really uh, very expensive motor cars. And I said I was about to start a PR business. And he said, oh, he said, um, that's interesting he said the rule that we have is we never keep a pr person or pr company for more than three years we always make sure that we fact them after three years so i said well why is that and he said well look in the first year uh, you're really keen and you want to do all sorts of things and you learn lots of things about our business and you have great ideas and we start to make uh, some traction. and then in the second year you're just reaffirming those ideas. You've made some contact and it, it's going well. By the third year, you've run out of your ideas. There's nothing new happening. So we pack you and get somebody else. That's how we work. And I thought that was a very cynical way to operate, but I understood it. Yeah. But it, it made me think that if I kept clients for more than three years, I was doing something right. And yeah. I found that over the over time, over these 30 years, the the average time I kept any one client was seven years. So I thought I did quite well.
0: Yeah, very well, very well yeah. indeed. Um. So switching from your your PR to your writing a book, how did the book come about? Yeah.
1: Well, like all these things, it was uh, a bit of a chapter of accident. In that, uh, in addition to to being a writer and a publicist and a singer and whatever. I also, uh, got, again, um, through a chapter of accident, I got involved in, uh, being a Baptist lay minister. Now, well, um, if, if we've got two minutes, I will, I'll go back briefly and explain why that happened. I was going to go to, uh, to, to study and I was going to go and study in Cardiff. And unfortunately, uh, I made a big mistake in those days of waiting until my place was confirmed before I found anywhere to live. And by the time I did that, there were no student places available. And this was bad news. And I thought I just wouldn't be able to live anywhere in, in Cardiff. And then my father remembered that he had been in college with a man who was now a Baptist minister, in Cardiff, uh, or then in those days, and his name was Trevor Thorne. Uh, he was at Albany Road Baptist Church in Cardiff. So my father wrote to him and said, do you know, do you know anybody who will take this uh, this budding student in? And uh, the, the reply was, well, no, but there's a Baptist training college, the South Wales Baptist College in Cardiff, and sometimes they have spare rooms when all the, you know, all the theological students uh, have been sorted, then they have spare room. rooms. So I wrote to them and they said, come and live with, uh, come and live with us. So I, I spent three years, very happy years living in the Baptist College in Cardiff, not studying theology. But I thought that because they were being kind enough to give me a room, then the least I could do was go along to college prayers. There are college prayers every, every morning from about seven o'clock. And so this was bad news because I was a bit sleepy, but I, I still went uh, to these college prayers so people saw me. Well, there was a girl called Janet Davis, who'd come from Swansea in the study uh, for the Baptist ministry in Cardiff. After a couple of weeks, she decided it wasn't for her, that's fine, and she left the college. This was a big problem for the college principal uh, because he had booked all of the the uh, all of the theological students to preach in various Baptist churches in the valleys of South Wales throughout the first term. Now he was one preacher short, and this was a problem. He came into my room, as you can imagine, six foot four, 26 stones, quite a big physical presence, and he came right up to me and sort of got his, you know, started probably prodding me with his finger, and he said, now look, he said, we've seen you coming to college prayers, and we think you should go and preach for the college. And I thought, oh, oh, well, all right. I mean, it would seem, it would seem uncharitable not to say yes. So the next Sunday found me catching a bus going up the Rhonda Valley to a place called Hensreth Horgan. And I was due to that. I conducted the service at the Baptist church chapel there and the Baptist chapel there worshipped through the medium of wealth. So thankfully, my wealth was good enough for me to, to just be able to sort of conduct most of the service. I didn't didn't preach in wealth, but uh, I I preached. And then I came home and I thought, oh, that's great. You know, I've got away with that. Well, anyway, these the church sent in a, a a response, a report on me, like it should have done for a theological student, and it said I was okay. So the next Sunday they said, well, will you go and. D- d- you know, do it again and do some more. This time it went. I went to an English church, which was fine. I was happier with the English church. Um, and it went on from there. So I spent three years learning uh, my sort of preaching trade, and there were lots and lots of stories I could tell you about that, uh, up and down the Welsh Valley. Then when I came up to London, I came to live in St Albans in, uh, in Hertfordshire, and I thought that I ought to join the Hertfordshire Fellowship of, of Baptist Preachers. And uh so I I did did the um did the Baptist Union diploma and uh religious knowledge and that was that was great. And um that got me into being um what we might now call a lay minister. And that was was something that I've been doing for a long time. But come back to your real question, which was how did I come to write the book? I out of the kindness of my heart <laughs> wrote um a regular monthly Article of about three to five hundred words, which got published in my local church's church magazine, which happened, which came out monthly, and that was fine until just about COVID, just before COVID, roundabout about there, I can't remember, October 2020, something like that. I don't know. the The editor of the magazine said to me, "No, church magazines are dead. We're not going to have one anymore. Um, that's it." And I was rather disappointed because I had written about seven years worth of articles to go in the church magazine uh and i now had the seven years worth of articles that were not doing anything plus i had all the ones that had been published in the past so i thought well look if i if i just wrap all these up and go and see a publisher i wonder whether they'll publish the book and i i know a publisher a uh, local publisher so i asked him and he said well this isn't really the sort of stuff that we do. But since it's you, yes, we'll publish it. And that was um that was the the start of Bob's Exploratory Theological Adventures, uh, which is the the book that's uh, that's come out. And uh, it contains a hundred and forty four of these sort um I suppose inspirational articles. And- the idea is that it gives you ideas, nuances, suggestions, inspirations, glimpses in and thought on living life and if you If you' made uh, an acronym of all of that, it would just be in type um and um that that's where we that's where we go
0: and in obviously in putting all of this together and in yeah. your your work generally, have you found that faith has has taken a huge part or how does mm. that come through you Yeah,
1: that's i it is a really interesting question. I I don't think I can answer it because I think faith is such a part of me that uh you know or, or you know, that that sort of um uh, yeah, that sort of approach to life that I, I think I can't separate it out really. Um I, I always tried to do, to do my, my best for my clients. Um, and I always try to, you know, you always try to do your best for these things, always try to be helpful. Um, now would I have not been that way if I hadn't had a faith? I, I don't know. It, it's an impossible one to, um, to answer there. Um, I, I suppose, yeah, I don't know. I'd like to think, I'd like to think that, that it all feeds on. Everything really, you know, all, all, all is cumulative. Um, but I mean, one, one quick thing for your writers out there, uh, writers always worry about, oh, I've written this, this thing. Can I get it published? Uh, and then they, they worry about, you know, they send off things to publishers and they keep getting, uh, rejection splits. and, um, then they, they worry about it. The the thing that that I always call to mind, and it's a, it's a networking thing, the thing that I call to mind is the very, very first, in quote famous person that I interviewed when I was editor of Transport Training all those years ago was a man called Anthony Jay, later Sir Anthony Jay. And uh, he was one of the two men behind the Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister series on television and uh, right. uh, did 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 really well, but at the time I was interviewing him because he was also one of co-owners of a company called Video Art um, with Don Please and various other people, and that they produced some really good management training videos in those days. Now oh, I, I remember. <laughs> there you go, and and I was so excited that I got to interview Anthony J. and. I said to him, uh, we got on to talking about yes minister because I, uh, you know, I didn't want to waste that opportunity. And I said to him, now, you you obviously had the idea for the yes minister, but how did you manage to get the BBC to give you uh, a, a contract to actually produce it? And he sort of thought for a moment and he said, Well, I don't know. He said, um, I th- uh, He said, well, all, all I did was phone up somebody. He, he said, was the head of BBC Life Entertainment. And I'd been to Cambridge with him. And um, I took him out for lunch. And by the end of the lunch, I would got a contract for two series. And I thought, that's the answer. That is the answer. That's how you get behind the, the wall. You know, you have to know the person. Um, once you're, once you're, you've been accepted, uh, yeah. then you can, you can get what you want published. And yeah. uh, that certainly worked in the case of my book. Not not quite as grand as Anthony J. I wasn't at Cambridge with uh, with the publisher, but uh, uh, I knew Carl French, the, who's the uh, the um, the owner of the Endless book Bookcase, uh, and um, talked to him nicely. and uh, and he said, "Yeah, okay, he'd publish the book, even though it wasn't the sort of thing that he would normally publish." So that that's the answer. If you if you're um, a struggling writer and you want to get published or get your stuff published in book form just get to know a publisher
0: yeah not not always what you know but who you know
1: i'm afraid so i'm afraid so so
0: talking about writing and getting published um one of the the questions that have come up this week is about editing what's your writing process and editing process
1: Mm, well i tend to because I I have been an editor of so many things, newspapers, magazines, and and now books, that I get very um, I get very very sort of um, worked up about editing. Now, I always think because I've earned my living that way uh, over many years that I'm a really good editor. I, I like to think that that may or may not be the case. As it happens, I happen to be writing another book at the moment and i've gone through the process of editing it uh, partly for um, economic reasons because if you you can you can write so you can just write a book and talk to your publisher and they'll say oh yeah fine you know send it through and we'll edit it Mm -hmm. well if they edit it then you pay money for them editing it so if your editing skills are up to, to standard. Then you could edit your own work. The problem is that, as you do that, you you misread a lot of what you write because your brain reads what you mean you meant to have write rather than what you actually have written. so you have to be really careful in going through this new book, I've had to write read it, and reread it three times, and I'm still picking up mistakes uh, uh you know, and things that could be better so. I suppose the, um, the, the real lesson is by all means do your own editing, particularly if you feel that you're a good editor, but don't just do it once and say, that's it. Do it at least two or three times and, and really be critical and try and get outside of yourself because you're not being the writer at that point. You're being the editor. You almost need to be a separate person or think of yourself as a separate person doing the editing it will save you money it may not save you time but it will save you money uh, if you do that
0: so in in your process do you yeah. write it and then come back and yeah. edit it or do you edit absolutely
1: well? absolutely i mean the, one of the things that that all writers have is they have they have this sort of writer's block they have this fantastic skill of procrastination we we really are a fantastic um uh, nation of procrastinators. And when you think about it, how many how many brilliant careers have there not been because I've got one in me, but I, I just can't get round to doing it. That that's the other. It'll never happen because you don't get round to doing it. The thing is, when you're when you're a newspaper editor and you've got to write 250 words on a particular subject like in half an hour, that concentrates the mind wonderfully. And the answer is what you do is you just write words. You write as many words as you like, any of them. Mm. Once you've written them, that's when you need to sort of come back and give them some shape. Because once you've written the words, you've got an idea of where you're going to go. You might not have an idea when you start, but you will have an idea when you've written, a, you know, some two, three, four hundred words. And that's when you start to have a shape. So just write. Just write whatever you like. doesn't have to be, even doesn't have to be grammatically correct to start with. Then you go back, you revise, you start to, to think, well, you know, maybe I could, you know, now that's when I can use the adjective. Using adjectives is a real key to good writing. <clears throat> uh, you you need, you know, it's the adjective that paints the word pictures. And And so, write what you want to write. It'll be verbose. It'll be, wrong it'll be you know everybody is bad the first time they do anything but you need to you need to then refine it and then it becomes something worthwhile then you can edit it and and the process starts that way it is much better to to begin than not to begin
0: thank you thank you for that so the book that you're writing now uh what is that about
1: ah oh yeah well i think that's right so if Bob's Exploratory Theological Adventures is a little bit neat, uh, in that it it's sort of inspirational for um, it's either for, for people who are preaching, uh are preachers and they want some ideas. Or it's for church secretaries or for people who look after churches, um, and then suddenly their um their speakers don't turn up and they need something to to, to read uh in, in their place, or it's for people who who just want some inspirational uh thoughts. To, to spark their thinking if that is is relatively neat um then what i'm writing now is even more neat because it was put to me in the summer that one of the things that that we need to do is we need to uh, refine and encourage people's preaching skills those people who are preachers need their their skills refined and they need some tips and techniques and, uh, there's, there's lots to think about these days, particularly as you get more, uh, more technology involved in, in church worship. People are now broadcasting, uh, their services on Zoom and things like that. So the preacher doesn't just have to turn up and talk. But they have to, you know, use slides and they, it's, it's a lot more sophisticated. So there, the people who talked to me wanted the heart the Fellowship of of Baptist Preachers, which I share, to produce a series of sessions for teachers and would-be preachers, teaching them those tips and techniques. And I thought, that's all very well, but it won't work unless you, first of all, have some basic knowledge of, of what the theory is. So, I'm writing a book about how to be a preacher, what things you need to understand, and how you need to react to people. Uh, and it, it, a lot of what is in the book would apply to any person who makes presentations. Right. So from that That's point that. of view, it's through sort of a bit of a business, business presentation thing. But mm. uh, it, but it would it would it worked in a, in a, a preaching sense. So it, you know, I, I think there'll only be about three people in the whole world who'll ever want a copy of this book that when if it ever sees <laughs> the light of day. But. Uh, um, on the other hand, if you'd, like, if you'd like to see a copy of it, I'd be very happy to send you a copy. But uh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> so do, do you
0: think there is a coming back to preaching?
1: Well, I hope so. Now, there's a slight sort of philosophical issue here. And I think it's going to get bigger as we go along. You can, through the marvels of modern technology, you can go into a studio and you can record yourself you can you can record your your eye movements, you can record hand movement, you can record body movement, you can go into a separate studio you can record some sounds, and there are very clever people who will then put all of those together and create a virtual you. Yes. Sometimes they can even do it in three d but certainly in two d and then all you ever have to do is produce. Um, a script, give it to those people, they will get your virtual self to deliver that as you. Now, that through them, it's all through the magic of artificial intelligence. Yes. Now, in that case, there is a case to be made for, you know, we won't ever need to use preaching skills because what will happen is there'll be a relatively small number of, if you want to call them super preachers, who will produce these sermons? They will be made available uh, to buy, presumably, through you know, over the website or whatever. And churches could have a, a library of these things, and then they'll just pop them out on a Sunday uh, or whenever. to whoever turns up. But then, then you say, well, does it really matter? You know, we've got the technology these days. Produce. Um, uh, music, church music, uh, on, um, uh, um, well, it used to be on CD, but now it's uh, over the internet, or you can go to iSing, or there's all sorts of, um, websites and things where you can get those sort of things. You've got people, uh, offering prayers and things. So, you know, why, why not just combine the whole thing, uh, and just run it, uh, for, for, you know, then people don't even have to turn up. It just happens in a, in a worship space. I think all of that is really, really sad, because it there's nothing about the community that that you you know you need, and there's nothing about personal contact with people. People learn through well, people really learn through emotion, don't they? If you think yeah, back, yeah, it's also any it's the time,
0: energy, isn't it, as well?
1: Yeah, yeah. But I mean, if you think back, any time that you learned anything, I. I would. I'm not a betting man, but I would. I would say, at the time you learned it, you were experiencing an emotion. Emotion is what makes us learn, you know. Yes. Uh, and uh, if, if you know, so you're either happy or you're sad or you know whatever, and you go, "No, I've learned that." That's what you need. You need. You need personal connection. Uh, yes. And and so I would. I would like to hope that all of what I've just describe will never happen. And if that never happens, then yes, you do need preachers. Now, yeah. I come from uh, a nonconformist background, obviously, uh, and, um, being from a nonconformist background, Baptist, Methodist, URC people, these sort of people have always focused on the word. Yeah. If you go into yeah. it, you can tell what sort of what sort of church any church is. If you go into it, because um, Roman Catholic, Anglican, Orthodox churches at the at the front there is an altar, uh, and the pulpit is to the side. If you go into a Nonconformist church, you'll find that the the pulpit, lectern, whatever it is, where the where the, the speaker speaks from, is is in the centre, uh, because yeah. Nonconformists believe. In the centrality of, of God's word, and uh, so you, you know you can you can get that that idea, and we you know we we don't we don't do altars and priests and things, um, but we do do the word, and it, so therefore within the non church certainly, but I think within other churches as well, it's very important to to focus on God's word, explaining God's word, uh, and helping relate God's word. To today, you know, this is what preachers are. They are a bridge, really, between um, God and His people, between the Bible and uh, uh, and today, uh, between olden times, if you like, and modern times. Uh, so you've, you, it, it's great to hear the Bible read, and and that will always give you some different insight into into the passages. But you really need to apply it to life today. To see, to see how how people can then go out and live their lives uh, in the way that, that is beneficial to the community.
0: Yes, yeah. Um, just on the subject of, of mm. AI around preaching, do you think the same thing, yeah. the same threat, if you like, exists around books and the publication absolutely. of new books?
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I, I think it it. it, it um, the dangers are we we could go we could always go the the wrong way. i mean, this is the problem with any technology, isn't it mm-hmm. that technology is very, very helpful, can be very helpful, but it can be manipulated and one of the things that you might even sort of want to relate it back to the Bible, really one of the things that that the Bible tells us human beings have not been good at is is working for the common good, so um, you might want to—I uh, I don't know. I'm just thinking. If you think about a story like the Tower of Babel story in in the Book of Genesis, uh, Genesis chapter eleven—is it? I don't. I can't remember. But um, it, it, the, the thing about the, the book of, the, the story of the Tower of Babel is, we all think it's about a tower. It's not. It's actually about making ziggurats. We think it's. Uh, it's about languages. It's not. It's about a technological in, uh, innovation that happened in Babylon, where people stopped building with stones and mortar and started building with brick. And then they found that they could build bigger buildings, quicker and and better and and what have you. And that that's what that's what it's all about. Without going into too, too finer a, a point, the problem is that when you have technological advances whether that's today or or in olden times, um, there are some people who benefit enormously by those technological advances, and the majority of people don't. And I think what the Bible's authors would want to be saying is that technology only really works when it's to the benefit of the whole community and not just the few. And that's one of the things that human beings really haven't got their heads around Uh, over the many, many centuries that we've been around, people always believe in a, in a scare culture. They always think I need to have more for me because one day I might not have enough. And the more I have means the less other people have. And that's what doesn't help humanity at all. Uh, And you could look at that, uh, in any of the, um, any of the, 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 Current major political situations around the world—you uh, could look at in, in communities, you could look, at, you know, anywhere, and see that. How, how about that? Was that was that? That probably too too serious uh, an answer for you, but no, uh... no.
0: It, I I think it's it's um it's very pertinent because I think even at this point where we have AI um, writers mm. and creative, um mm. quite often don't recognize the copyright implications. That if it's taken uh, yeah. into AI and reproduced, yes. then you've lost yeah. all copyright to that. Um, so, for instance, yeah. with, with Zoom, their their yeah. new copyright laws say that anything that's taken into AI from any session yeah. that you may run is yeah. um, can be used within the AI product. So, Bro.
1: well, I mean, one, one if you want to spin that round the other way, uh, but I I I think you're absolutely right, and and it is something to be worried about. If you're a if you're a speaker or a preacher, uh, or certainly a speaker, and you want to use some illustrations in a power, oh, I don't know a PowerPoint slide or something. What people tend to do is they tend to go on to the internet and they go onto images and they pick a nice image and they put it in their slide. And of course, if that image is the copyright is owned by somebody else, and what you do gets broadcast, it's different if it's just. Def- within a couple Mm. of friends but if you do if it is broadcast on you know zoom or youtube or whatever you can then have a problem over copyright for that image so the answer is there are a number of ai engines dal E, E, is one of them but there are other ones um where you can ask that AI engine to generate images for you and then they become your copyright because, you know, nobody else has, has got them. Uh, and mm-hmm. that gets you around the copyright issue. But yes, um, I, I think you're, I, I think what you're, what you're saying is, is, is right. And we do need as creative artists, as writers, uh, and, uh, people like that, we need to actually get our work uh, out. It's not yes. what, the problem with artificial intelligence is that again, it's that few people, relative few people within, within the, 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 um, the media within that, that part of the media, um, who are, uh, gathering all of this, this, um, creative material to themselves. Yeah. Uh, it's much better to let people be people and communicate with real people rather than get AI generated people to communicate because then how, how do you know that you're dealing with a real person? You are not. How do you know that you're not being manipulated by somebody else's, you know, ideas or or yes, it's really, really difficult. I think we've got some very big ethical issues to think about over the coming uh, over the coming years. Yeah. Yeah, I
0: think I think one of the immediate ones is the lack of knowledge that chat GPT is heavily censored in the yeah. replies that it gives. So it's very leaning towards, as you say, certain groups, you know, what information they want you to have. So, yes, it's all, it can be... Well, you you know,
1: you're you're right, yeah.
0: Yeah, I think there's there's an education around AI that isn't put out there really as well, unless you're willing to go look for it.
1: Well, unfortunately, it's not in the interest of the people who own the AI. Well, who benefits? And if you can work out who is benefiting... Then, then you know it's their agenda that you're being given, yeah, I mean that was true. that was true in a in a very small way when I suddenly became a newspaper editor, oh, uh, with I have to say very little experience, but suddenly, what you know I had 16, 20, sixteen, twenty twenty-eight pages, sometimes thirty-two pages to fill what went into those pages was what I thought was a good thing. So I, I anybody who read what I what I wrote in those newspapers, um, got my view of life. Yes, and and all AI is doing is doing it, but on a much much bigger scale to many more people.
0: Yes, and is controlled, and I think that's the thing that that people yeah. forget that it is.
1: Yeah. So so I suppose if you're being cynical. The the golden rule is make sure you're one of the people who's controlling the AI. And if yes. you're not, be very, very skeptical of what you, what you find. Yeah.
0: Yes. I, I think that's, you know, that's one of the first golden rules, again, that isn't really put out there. It's that like you train your own AI to give you yeah. the information you need. So you learn yeah. how to, to get around. Yeah. Yeah. So very fascinating, and I'm thinking from a, a faith perspective, where does AI fit in with faith? Do you think?
1: I am sure that there are people, very worthy people uh, within the faith community, who are saying, "Yeah, AI is really good because we can reach more people with with more inspirational messages." I I'm not convinced about that. Uh, I think that faith see if you if you actually break down the word religion for example it comes from two latin words re ligio and ligio is, is where we get ligament from you know re ligio it it's sort of bringing things back together again if you like remembering a body it's like putting a body back together again a person back together and and that's what religion does it, it Brings us, uh, and I would like to say God, um, you know, back together again so that we can actually, you know, do good in our communities. We can, we can be good to all, you know, everybody. We can, we can look after people who need looking after. We can, uh, you know, take care of other people. Uh, and that, after all, regardless of, you know, how much money or power or whatever you, you, you have or want to have. That's what really life on this planet is all about. It's be about being good to other people and and helping others and helping us all to do well uh, and yes. and that that's not where AI is. AI is all about entertainment it's about idolatry in that in the sense of uh making making uh well almost of god out of. Uh, Out of our, you know, our pop stars, our pop stars, our, you know, whatever. We we are we are um, encouraging fame and you know and that sort of adulation. That that is not what life is is or should be all about.
0: Yeah, I I posted a quote yesterday, funnily enough, on Facebook about you know let our children know the names of plants rather than the, pl- the names of pop stars.
1: <laughs> oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, 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 um, and we don't, do we? It, it, but uh, that, you know, we we could we could, um, you know, the whole thing could degenerate now into the sort of, you know, I was going to say grumpy old men, but we're not, but we're sort of grumpy old people um, talking about how much nicer it was in our in our day and things, and um, some of it was nice, but some of it wasn't. And when I think back to my young day, uh, I, you know, we did terrible things to the environment, and you know, I know we still are. But, but that again is not something that we are doing. Uh, and I'm glad mm-hmm. that we, we're beginning to, to realize, uh, uh, about, about that and try, try not to do it. I mean, it was, um, it was not so long ago that it was the anniversary of the, uh, of the ABBA van design that uh, that, uh, you know, that happened. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, they, they were, well, they were almost my contemporaries, you know, they were slightly older than me, but, but they were almost my contemporaries. And, and you thought as a, as a child, uh, in a, uh, in a, in a junior school, you know, elsewhere, you know, how fortunate you were that you weren't, you hadn't been in the right, wrong place at the wrong time, you know, and that was, but that, that's all down to, um, you know, uh, un, unhelpful exploitation of, um, of the world's resources, you know.
0: Yes, yes, there is a, a a need for awareness and wisdom. I think.
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So there we go. Now, um, I know we're 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 sort of beginning to uh, to, to to wrap up at this point, but um, just, just look would you would you be interested in in a very very short excerpt from from my book, uh, Bob Exploratory Theological Adventures, available from. All good, uh, booksellers, uh, particularly the endless bookcase and sometimes from me as well. So there we are. A very quick, and uh, now this is a quick story that I'm indebted to the late Sir John Harvey Jones because, oh, uh, at one time I did some PR for the BBC and I worked with Sir John Harvey Jones on, um, the second series of the troubleshooter programs that he did a long, long yeah. time ago. And he told this story. Uh, he said, that once upon a time, there was a man, and he, he lived in a uh, foreign land, and he had seventeen camels, and he also had three sons. And when he died, he left uh, arrangements. He said that in his will, he said that his eldest son should have half the camels, and his middle son should have a third of the camels, and his youngest son should have a ninth of the camels. So the three boys got together and they had their 17 camels and the eldest one said, right, let me take my half." So half of 17 is, oh, it's eight, eight and a half, isn't it? So he said, well, just a minute then. I'll, I'll just go and get my score. And the other two boys said, no, no, you can't do that. that. That's terrible. You can't have half a camel. So they thought about it and they thought about it and they couldn't find an answer. And then they said, well, I'll tell you what. They said, tell you what we we'll have to go and see the village's wise old woman. So they all went off to the wise old woman and they told her their problem. And she thought for a moment and she said, well, I tell you what, she said, see what happens if I give you my camel. So now the boys had 18 camels. So the eldest takes his half, which was nine camels, yeah. and the middle son take his third, which was six camels, and the youngest take his nine, which was two camels. So they had nine camels, six camels, and two camels, and that made 17. They had one camel left over. So they took it back to the wise old woman, and she said, thank you very much. Now, that's a very interesting story, because it illustrates that quite often in life, we have problems, and we can't see our way through them. But if we just think to add one to our problem and of course i would say that one is jesus but if you were to add one more to that problem then you can fold that problem and your your problem disappears so mm-hmm. there we are that that one thought for uh, thought, thought for the day for you
0: thank you very much i just want to add that i'll be including all of your links to your book and your social media within the show notes if anyone wants to contact you. Is there any parting thought you would like to leave us with?
1: No, except to say that it's been an absolute delight and uh, you've been very indulgent in letting me talk for so long uh, about me, which is uh, not something I get to. I, I, have a, I have a family which tries not to let me talk about me. So thank you so much, Heather. It's been absolutely wonderful and I hope, I hope um, some of that has been some interest to at least some people. I'm I'm sure it will. And thank you so
0: much. It's been, it's been wise and we've discussed quite a few topics, so it's been very good. So thank you so much for that.
1: Wonderful. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this week's episode. If you enjoyed it or think it would be valuable to others, please do share. And if you really enjoyed it, please leave me a review. It really helps the podcast. All of the links are in the show notes, and I look forward to seeing you next week on the Choosing Happy podcast.